Hey, everybody. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Well, it's the day after Super Tuesday, and uh, I'm going to offer some thoughts on what happened last night and what it means uh, potentially going forward at the close this week, uh, because we are joined today by Anita Dunn, who is uh, Joe Biden's senior advisor uh, in the presidential campaign. Anita used to be communications director in the White House for President Obama. Uh, she was involved in our 08 race as a senior advisor, so I've worked uh, very closely with Anita uh, in some foxholes and had a long career before that helping uh, folks get elected up and down the ballot. So we're going to spend time with Anita uh, both diagnosing what happened over the last 72 hours, which is some of the uh, most eventful uh, days we've seen in American politics in a long time, but most importantly, I think, talk about what this means going forward, uh, both for their march to the nomination, uh, but also talk a little bit about the general election and how they can build on their performance last night. So I uh, hope you enjoy this conversation with Anita Dunn. So I'm joined today by Anita Dunn. We're talking uh, the day after Super Tuesday, which was a resoundingly terrific day for Vice President Biden. So Anita, we're going to spend time looking back at the last 72 hours. But I want to ask you, um, you've already moved on, I'm sure, uh, both mentally and reality to the next set of contests. So how do you guys look at the next three weeks where you've got states like Florida, Michigan, Georgia, Mississippi? Um, how do you think those may unfold for you? And now that you guys probably can cap, um, add money and organization to your momentum, how does that change things for you guys? Well, obviously, having money and organization is going to be a big change, David, from what we have been going through for the last month, and in particular, the Super Tuesday states, where I think most people know we had very little organization and almost no money. So we are successfully proving that you can indeed go in and compete in states without having anything on the ground or anything in the air when you are coming off the kind of victory that Vice President Biden had in South Carolina. You know, as we look at the next three states, we look at states that we think can be very good for us, in particular states that have real delegate opportunities for us. We've always seen March as a period of time where we were going to be targeting congressional districts that were delegate rich for us. For example, last night, you know, Terry Sewell's district in Alabama is a delegate rich district that we had targeted from very early on and that we feel very good about. We probably netted more delegates out of there than Bernie Sanders did in the entire state of Vermont. So it is, as you know better than anyone, David, a delegate game at this point. So we look at March 10th and we look at you know Mississippi, obviously, we think is a rich target for us in terms of delegates. Um, Michigan is going to be a fight with Bernie Sanders, no question. Uh, Missouri has some very good places for us. And, and so we look at those opportunities March 17th is four very big, very expensive states, um, Arizona, Illinois, um, Ohio, and of course, Florida, which is a huge delegate target, um, and one where we think we potentially can do quite well. And then, of course, on the 24th is Georgia, a state where we feel very comfortable given the performance that we've had so far in southern states that we can we can have a big night there. So... Now, as we look at the rest of March, it is very much about getting delegates and um, maintaining our strength in, you know, um, different demographic groups that have really become the foundation of this candidacy. 
So, um, and I'm not saying this just to butter up to you, Anita, um, but because I've said this publicly. When I just look at the next three weeks, and if you simply just try and, as best you can, approximate what happened last night on Super Tuesday, and I think particularly when you have Michael Bloomberg out of the race, not that you guys will get all of his vote, but, you know, maybe you get would get 75% of it. It seems to me, particularly the fact that you may exit now Super Tuesday with a delegate lead, which is what I think maybe you guys were expecting, but I think most people thought um, you were headed to a good night, but you'd still trail Sanders. So you may leave Super Tuesday once all the delegates are allocated in California with with a lead. Do you think it's likely you're going to end this month, um, you know, with a delegate lead that could be in the 100, 150 range? You know, clearly we would be thrilled if we end this month with the delegate lead in the 100 to 150 range. No, to be perfectly honest, we were hoping to come out of Super Tuesday close to Sanders, given where um, mm-hmm. what the contours of the race had been, given the amount of money that Michael Bloomberg was spending in those Super Tuesday states, and frankly, given the strength that he was showing um, in some states where he had definitely cut into what we saw as our potential vote. South Carolina reset the race in a way that I think we're all still coming to grips with in terms of letting us come out of Super Tuesday. We we agree with you. We believe that we potentially come out with a slim lead. And then we do think that the states in March are set up advantageously for us to end March with a lead. Right. So you guys had something I think was underestimated, but I always get reminded in politics, it's easier to gain back voter support you had that might have left you temporarily than if you never had it at all, right? So Joe Biden spent most of last year as the national frontrunner. I think, you know, as he uh, did had some debate performances that weren't as strong and most importantly, um, didn't perform as well in Iowa's and New Hampshire as people thought, I think some of those voters kind of parked undecided, maybe soft Bloomberg. Then you guys perform really well in South Carolina. You get the Clyburn endorsement. Some of your former rivals endorse you. One of the most remarkable 72 hours in politics. But you again, you did most of that on momentum and the support you had that you got back. Now that you guys presumably are going to be, uh, you know, a little bit more advantaged with resources, presumably both financial people, like how will the campaign be different for you guys over the next three weeks? Are we talking about a lot more advertising, a lot more staff? Just it's interesting. Now, maybe you shouldn't screw with perfection and maybe you shouldn't do any of that, you know, because it worked pretty well last night. But what can you add to the mix? Well, I, I think you've outlined what we can add to the mix and what we fully intend to add to the mix. No, we're pretty excited about being able to do some television advertising in states that have primaries. We have, you know, we spent very small amounts of money on advertising for Super Tuesday, and really, it was all within the last week before Super Tuesday, and almost adding to it on a a daily basis. So, when you compare how much we spent to Sanders, when you compare how much we spent to, you know, not even Michael Bloomberg, but to to the other candidates in the race. You know, it was, um, you know, about the amount of money you'd expect to spend on a competitive congressional race these days as opposed to a presidential race Mm -hmm. in 14 states. So I think that the resources will allow us, first of all, to have organization on the ground, which is something we want to do. It lets us expand our digital operation. We really are critically interested in building that community as we had in 2008 and 2012. And we have the resources now to really invest in doing that. And obviously, things like advertising, some more traditional kind of campaign things. You know, Senator Sanders has 
a dedicated organization that he's had since 2016. That is a huge advantage. And as we, we go into states where it has been kept very much alive, and obviously he's always going to have a financial advantage on us, we believe. But we think as we go into these states that coming out of South Carolina and Super Tuesday, no voters do have permission to support Joe Biden again, to feel like he's the person who is best positioned to beat Donald Trump. And that's what those victories have done, is give people the permission to support him and to say, yes, he is the one. Right. So, you know, you and I have done some races together, and I think um, I think in any election, but particularly a presidential election, successful candidates and campaigns tend to be the ones that say, okay, I just did really well. How can I do better? <laughs> right? So now Bernie Sanders, we see, understands he's got to do better with the African-American vote to have any chance. Now he's running ads with Barack Obama, um, you know, somebody he thought about primarying. You know, when I look at, at the exit polls, uh, but, but you're studying it much more carefully— you know, you see, is there opportunity for you guys to grow your Latino vote share as you look at states like Arizona, um, Florida, New York, all of those, by the way, different, uh, you know, in terms of the actual population, uh, younger voters. So I guess as well as you did, you know, as you look at things today, like where can you grow and get even stronger? Well, I think you've just outlined the two major groups where it's clear as a campaign, we have to do a better job engaging with people and growing, not just for the primary, but also as we think about what kind of foundation we need to be laying now in order to go into a general election, should we win the nomination? And I do believe we'll win the nomination. And, you know, critically, younger voters are people that I think the vice president would love to be more engaged with, that he feels this campaign needs to figure out a more effective way to go engage with them. We have come a long way with our kind of core constituencies who have allowed us to get to where we are now. But you know, the Latino voters, younger voters, and often, you know, they are younger Latino voters are clearly groups we need to go engage with in a much more effective way moving forward. Right. Um, and do you see um, you've got both Florida and Arizona. Um, obviously, Florida has, you know, a large Cuban population, large Puerto Rican uh, population. Arizona uh, has uh, you know, a Latino population, not exactly like California, but more like that. So are you guys, when you look at those two states in particular, what types of things will you be doing? You, you mentioned outreach, but I'm just curious if that's going to be a place where you overemphasize Joe Biden's time or your spending. Well, I think one of the things that we are definitely going to be looking at will be um, advertising that is very specifically into the Latino community. We also have some really effective surrogates and, and people who um, have been campaigning with us that I think we can do a better job of targeting into the communities. I you know Hilda Solis, who um, was our Secretary of Labor in the Obama administration in 2009, has been a stalwart for this campaign. Um, we have, you know, other members, as you know, we have members of Congress, we have people, and I think we can do a much more effective job than we've done in using their time well to have them go in, campaign into places talk to people about Joe Biden, why they're supporting Joe Biden, to validate that, um, also to do um, you know, media on our behalf. But a lot of it is going to come down to, to Joe Biden as well. And as we look at the next couple of weeks, you know, obviously, big map, a lot of delegates, a lot of important states, but this is a critical part of our thinking. So you've obviously got a bunch of big states in front of you, as you just mentioned. You're going to try and get as many delegates in those states. Um, and, you know, Bernie Sanders has said if 
whoever ends up being the leader in, plur- in delegates, even if they don't get a majority, should be the nominee. So that's probably helpful for you guys because uh, you're probably more likely than not to be that person now with no guarantees. But, you know, you have to plan for every eventuality. So how much time are you guys, it's hard enough doing as well as you can with voters, <laughs> but how much time are you having to spend with, well, we have to now start to talk to super delegates and, you know, Pete Buttigieg and, and uh, Mike Bloomberg actually had some pledge delegates and they can reallocate. Like, how much of that work are you guys having to do as you try and intensify your uh, operation in, in the states to come? Well, David, as, as you remember from 2008, you have at this point in the campaign, you have to start running a lot of trains on parallel tracks. So, yes, as we continue to you know, battle for delegates in the states you know, and weekly primaries and and have to go through, you know, the the primaries and the election. We also are starting to um, think about the super delegates, you know, who are, um, you know, come into the second round now because they've changed the rules. To think about obviously our own delegates, think about the delegates for other people, and putting more resources resources into a delegate operation. Another parallel track we, you know, have to start thinking about is um, a convent, you know, the convention rules and. Um, the DNC and the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee and all of those things um, that could come into play if it's a contested um, contested nomination, if nobody wins it outright or if you know somebody has a plurality but the other person doesn't feel like they should get out. You know, Vice President Biden's been clear that he thinks you know he was going to play by the rules and the existing rules and that may mean this goes into the convention. Bernie Sanders has said that you know, the candidate with the plurality should get the nomination. Obviously, he and his staff, and Jeff Weaver in particular, played a big role in writing the current rules of the DNC that the DNC is following for the nominating process. So we don't think he can complain about the rules the way he did in 2016. And the question really is going to be, you know, when the dust settles, where is everybody and whether or not the candidate who, with the plurality, does have enough that it feels like the other candidates don't have a chance. Right. So I don't envy you because that's a lot of parallel tracks, but let's add another one. So um, let's talk about candidate performance. So uh, I think it's fair to say the last two debates, Joe Biden performed um, you know, more strongly than previous debates, maybe graded on a curve, but uh, was judged to have done better, had a really good CNN town hall his speech uh, the night of the South Carolina primary went in last night, I think, was judged to be tight. What's interesting, you know, uh, as you know, I helped prepare Vice President um, Biden uh, for debates in, in 12 and 8. Uh, you've been very involved in that as well. Uh, and so what's interesting to me is you look ahead at March 15th, the next debate, which, you know, we'll see what Elizabeth Warren does, but it could be a two-person debate. And I'm just curious, um, as he has improved his performance um, I'm not asking you to share strategic secrets, obviously, but how do you think about that? Because that seems to be, um, if you if you agree that the calendar lays out favorably for you and you look at what could be the speed bumps out there, um, you know, that could be a speed bump. And while he excelled, I think, in both of the one-on-one debates he had against Palin and Ryan, um, uh, and these have all been multi-candidate debates, it's still, you know, going to be a couple hours kind of mano a mano. So um, again, without, you're not going to share strategic secrets, but I'm just curious how you guys are thinking about that. And, you know, preparing candidates for debates is something you've done your entire career. So I'd just love you to talk a little bit about that if you could. March 15th could be a very interesting debate. 
if it is indeed one-on-one. I mean, if it's if Senator Warren is still a candidate in this race, it'll be an extremely interesting debate because she is by far the best debater <laughs> in this field. Right. She's just, you know, she's really quick on her feet and very smart, very prepared, just a very good debater. You know, if you go back and you look at the one-on-one um, debates between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders in 2016, I think, as, as we have done, I think you've, you feel that this could end up being a good matchup. We've always felt that as the stage shrank, Biden would do better. Those early debates where it was, you know, 10 people on the stage and nine of them were attacking Biden, nobody was going to look good under those circumstances. But, you know, he and Sanders respect each other. Um, I, you know, I think they like each other genuinely. But there are real differences between the two of them in terms of how what they think the job of president is what they kind of think the job of elected official is. And, you know, as Vice President Biden says, results, not revolution. Obviously, Senator Sanders believes in a revolution above results. And so it could be one of the more interesting debates you see because these are two people who respect each other, but they really disagree on their approach to government. And, you know, let the voters decide. We believe the voters at the end of the day are looking for somebody who's going to deliver tangible results that make a difference in their lives, whether it's expanding Obamacare, um, the next step on Obamacare, which, you know, you and I both were involved in, so that we get more people covered, we bring down prices, we make sure that prescription prices come down, or whether it's throwing the whole thing out, as Senator Sanders has proposed, and starting all over again. And I think those of us who worked for President Obama when we were getting Obamacare passed and then had to implement it, no, that's no small thing to throw the whole thing out and start over. Um, and there are no guarantees of what comes out at the other end. So, you know, I think that we, as we look at it, we think it's going to be an interesting debate if it's one-on-one. We think there are real differences, and we think that it's probably one where both candidates will seek to communicate both their core messages, but also draw some real contrast with each other. So knowing Joe Biden, uh, you know, a little bit, one of the things that strikes me is you think about his performance, right, which is the debate coming up probably being most important. But, you know, every interview he's doing and uh, every event he's doing, the calls he's having with uh, people he want to support him, um, how much is, you know, it seems to me that the, the number of people, now a lot of voters, but also people like Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Harry Reid, who've now put all their chips on him. Like My sense is that that may help his performance just because, I mean, that's a badge of honor, obviously, but he also, you know, I assume views that as a responsibility, right? Like he can't let these people down uh, with performances that aren't up to par. So um, what's your view of that? How much of a dynamic could that play? I, I think that's always been a huge part of this dynamic, though. I mean, you know, he wasn't looking to run for president. He had served as vice president after having a distinguished career in the Senate. He loved being vice president. He loved working with Barack Obama. He felt like he got a lot of important things done in that eight years. And he was not necessarily someone who felt he needed to run for um, president this time. It's one of the reasons he was so late in getting into the races, because he really wasn't planning to run for um, two years after leaving the White House. But, and he's talked about this on the stump often. You know, he made the fundamental decision that he needed to run against Donald Trump, that four years of Trump 
could be an aberration, but eight years could fundamentally change the soul of this country. And he has carried that responsibility into every event, every interview, every conversation he has with a voter, that, that core belief that this is about the soul of America. And he talks about that, but that is why he's running. So that's responsibility. I think he feels very strongly. The support that he's now getting from, you know, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar and Beto O'Rourke and, you know, Harry Reid and, and, and people across the board, I think is a, a mark of confidence to him. And he carries that responsibility. But I think it also makes him feel as though the, you know, the alignment behind him gives him, frankly, a lot of confidence moving forward. Right. So let's talk about an additional burden you guys, I think, will carry, which is um, you've laid out all the, you know, very complex moving pieces you're having to stay on top of now. And you still have a lot of hard work to become the Democratic nominee. But it seems more likely than not that Trump and his allies uh, may begin to start the general election right away, uh, both to try and wound uh, Vice President Biden, uh, you know, for the next couple of months to make the securing of the nomination harder, uh, but in the event that he is the nominee, to wound him. So how are you guys thinking about that from a planning standpoint or resource standpoint? You know, I don't think any campaign has ever had to think about what the incumbent of the White House was going to do, uh, the incumbent of the White House being prepared to use all of the resources of the federal government. And other governments, yeah. And other governments, (laughs) yes. I mean, getting himself impeached over this already. Um, even if he wasn't convicted. So it is, um, yes, it's an additional complexity, David, that um, we do have to take into account all the time. We've had to build um, out some defenses on it already. I think that we will continue to work with allies and with other parts of the Democratic Party. I mean, the one thing that did unite the candidates was this belief that Trump trying to get um, trying to get involved in our primary to pick the Democratic nominee was wrong and that using the federal government the way he did was wrong. And we think that Democrats, by and large, have felt that way since the first story broke about Trump asking Ukraine to try to manufacture dirt against the Biden family. So we were aggressive this fall, pushing back on it. We'll continue to be aggressive pushing back on it. And I think as we move farther down the road here, we will have broader alliances also helping us push back on it. Right. That's going to be a super um, tough challenge. Yes. Mm-hmm. But would you expect the the whether it's the Trump campaign directly, his super PAC, other affiliated entities, um, and the Republicans seem to care less about campaign finance law than we do on our side. So I'm sure it'll all be coordinated. Um, do you, would you expect some significant spending in some of the upcoming primary states, and, and especially ones that that are also battleground states like Michigan, Arizona, Florida? Or do you think this is mainly going to be him tweeting and just trying to cause mischief? Well, a, a group called the Committee to Protect the President um, has already been doing ads. They did, you know, a, a decent television buy in South Carolina, roughly $200,000 for the week before the primary down there, and used a an ad that took... Um, our former boss's um, words from his audio book and images to misleadingly imply that he thought Joe Biden you know, had problems with um, um, persons of color. So, you know, they're not playing by anybody's rules. We fully expect that. Um, we think that we'll see super PAC spending. We think that we'll see 
um, digital. We think that um, foreign governments are going to try to influence voters as well. You know, from the beginning of this race, it's been quite clear the one thing that Donald Trump doesn't want to do is run against Joe Biden. And we don't think that's going to change. So as we move forward, we fully anticipate we're going to see super PAC spending. We would just, you know, hope that there would be super PAC spending on the Democratic side to um, to call out Trump, call out his tactics, and to also be campaigning against him during this period when the nomination won't be settled. Right. So uh, I know you're not you're not going to be presumptuous, but so let, this is a hypothetical. But let's say we do roll into April. And you guys have done as well as you hope in, in some of the upcoming contests over the next three weeks. So it's it's clear you've got a delegate lead that you're almost certainly not going to give up. So you're maybe you're headed to majority, maybe just a plurality. And the Trump, you know, weaponry really intensifies. And, you know, you mentioned it would be great if some Democratic super PACs came in. But are you guys going to basically have to be fighting two races at once? <laughs> Meaning, you know, you're still going to have to go to the, you know, New York's of the world and the Maryland's of the world that have primaries. But, you know, you don't want to fall too far behind, uh, you know, in these battleground states. So I'm just curious. I know you're just coming off Super Tuesday and you've got to retrench, but uh, I know you think about these things. I'm just curious how you're thinking about that. So we are thinking about the fact that we're going to have to be running two races at the same time. And yes, we that is the way we see it, that there's a primary process that we will be going through, but there's a broader general election that is going to begin any minute now and actually has been going on since Biden got into the race because, you know, from the day he got into the race, the Republicans have targeted him. You know, they'll use Congress. They'll use their committees. Um, they have some allies in the press who will carry their messages for them all the time. And obviously the White House, the president, and the entire administration have shown a willingness to use the federal government for political purposes. So we do think it is going to be a dual campaign throughout the primary process. But we also think that when we are running against Donald Trump, when we are making the contrast with Donald Trump between Joe Biden, a person who has a big heart, has empathy for people, who gets results, but results for the kinds of families and you know that, that work hard, the kind of families like his from Scranton, Pennsylvania and from Claymont, Delaware, Versus Donald Trump, when we are running that contrast, we think it helps us. It helps us in the primaries and it helps us in the general election. So it may be that engaging with Trump, which has always throughout this primary process has been our strongest moments have been when we are engaging with Trump as opposed to when we're engaging with the Democratic field. And that may very well be the case this spring. Uh, so you can do some things that benefit both tracks there. Yep. Uh, mm -hmm. the, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, I think Vice President Biden was, was asked about this last week and said, uh, I think there had been maybe Jim Clyburn suggested the campaign needed uh, to be strengthened. And he said, well, you know, he, he intends to do that through addition. Um, do you envision now that, you know, presumably your fundraising will continue to strengthen, um, you know, whether it's folks who worked on Pete Buttigieg's campaign, Mike Bloomberg's, Klobuchar's, from, you know, very junior organizers to senior staff, um, would you imagine, um, and obviously you need to be careful about that so you have a, a functioning good culture, but uh, should we expect some, some new recruits here in the coming weeks? Yes, absolutely. We have um, a small staff compared to many other campaigns that was a function of our fundraising. There's a lot of talent that has just become available to Democratic candidates up and down the ballot again. This morning, thanks to Mayor Bloomberg having withdrawn. 
um, there were Mayor Pete's campaign and Amy Klobuchar's campaign both had some really great political talent. And so we feel that as we move forward, you know, it's an additive process. If you're a successful campaign and you're running for the presidency, that um, as the playing field broadens, you need more people on it. As you prepare for the convention, you prepare for the general election, clearly the mission changes. And the people that you need um, are hopefully available to you at that point. But we do see the next several months, certainly the next couple of months, as a scaling up period. And there are going to be a lot of good people out there, and we hope that they're going to want to join this. We have been encouraged by the number of people who share with us this burning um, passion and commitment to um, defeating Donald Trump. And you know, we're asking them to join us. We feel like that is going to be um, a great source of talent for us, these other campaigns. For sure, yeah. Well, and I know a lot of those people you'll put in states, but uh, no better city to come live for a few months in in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So that's an added recruitment uh, bonus you guys have. So I'm just curious, Anita, let's go back to last week. So um, obviously you come out of New Hampshire finishing fifth. Um, you um, rebound in Nevada to some extent. You you come in second there, which I think breathes some life. But take us back to like a couple days before Clyburn endorsed last week. Like, just what was the feel in the campaign, and and when did you guys begin to have a sense that um, you might win by enough margin in South Carolina um, to give you the kind of propulsion in the Super Two? I'm just. It must have been really hard, right? Because you guys were kind of down to your last. Uh, at bat. And um, I'm just curious uh, what that was like, how you guys kept people focused. Um, you know, if you could take us inside those rooms. I, I've, I certainly have been part of winning campaigns, but I think campaigns are most tested when they do have setbacks. So I'm just curious um, what that was like. We were, talking, um, we were talking about that at the campaign this morning. The um, coming in second in Nevada, and granted, a very distant second, but a solid second in Nevada, was the key moment for this campaign because, you know, our theory of the case had been, and we told our donors as we told the press this, we told elected officials as our theory of the case was the second two states would be the places where we began to show the strength of our coalition and the um, appeal that Vice President Biden had across the diversity of this Democratic Party, as opposed to Iowa and New Hampshire, which we always knew were going to be bad states, although we probably didn't think they would be quite as disastrous as they turned out to be for the campaign. So um, I would say the the story of this campaign really starts with that night of the New Hampshire primary and the decision to go down to South Carolina and to do primary night down in South Carolina and really lay out that, you know, put that marker down that this is, this is where we are going to make our stand. And then going to Nevada and having a very focused campaign in Nevada coming in second there, a distant second, but a solid second, and being able to say to people, okay, now we go to South Carolina, and now this is where we are going to win. And so we walked, you know, we went to South Carolina, and we had a debate um, Tuesday night. Nevada was on Saturday, so you had almost no time between the Nevada results and the debate. And it was clearly going to be a critical debate for us, but we got to South Carolina. The crowds were already kind of bigger and more enthusiastic. We had a lot of support down there. The polling showed that it was a pretty narrow lead we had at that point going into the state over Sanders. And obviously, the press was very into the idea that Sanders was about to sweep the entire country, that he was going to 
when South Carolina, we had Tom Steyer down there who had spent a huge amount of money, um, $20 million, I believe, in the state, and who was polling a strong third. So there was a lot of you know, uninformed press speculation about what was going to happen. And, um, and the vice president you know, turned in the best debate performance of the 10 debates and came out of there with a huge amount of momentum. And obviously, the Clyburn endorsement was an extraordinary moment there. And I think it was underestimated by a lot of people, the moral authority that Jim Clyburn carries, not just in South Carolina, but throughout the country. And, um, and then we executed our plan. We were surprised by the size of the margin. You could feel it opening up by the end of the week. We weren't polling or tracking, but you could feel it opening up, and the public polling suggested it. But we did not expect to win by that size. And that's, I think, a great tribute both to the vice president but also to Congressman Clyburn. So you weren't polling or tracking. Presumably, maybe the main reason they're just resources, right? So that tells you how strapped you guys were heading into that. And to find yourself kind of back as the national frontrunner today, it's just a remarkable, remarkable story. Um, I have to ask you this, even though you'll probably be annoyed uh, because there's a lot of speculation about it. So would you guys be comfortable if, if former President Obama uh, remained uh, on the sidelines and really saw his view as let the voters vote, uh, let the process play out, and then his view is to both help unify and help campaign for the nominee? Well, we're going to be darn happy when we're the nominee and he's campaigning for us. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Good answer. Good answer. Well, Anita, I know how busy you are um, the day after Super Tuesday, but thank you for taking some time. And, and I think it was great to hear directly from you about how you guys both viewed what happened. But I think probably most importantly, how you see both the, the next few weeks in the primary and the general election shaping up. So thank you for your time. No, oh, thank you for having me on, David. Well, I appreciated Anita Dunn spending time with us today after Super Tuesday when they've got uh, a million things going on uh, and also her candor. So a few things struck me out of that. Uh, they know that they need to match the momentum they've had with more uh, traditional uh, campaigning, uh, staff on the ground and more advertising. Um, you can say why mess with success, but um, you always want to do better than you did last time in a campaign. And I think that uh, uh, they probably see the ability to do better in, in certain constituents like the Latino community, but also understanding, I think, that uh, you know Bernie Sanders is obviously a ferocious competitor, well-resourced, so uh, you can't rely on momentum solely. Interesting to hear Anita's thoughts about the debate, uh, that if this ends up being a one-on-one -on -one debate between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden on March 15th, she believes that is more to vice president's liking than some of the multi-candidate debates. So uh, we will see whether that unfolds, but that could be obviously a really, really critical moment uh, to see if Vice President can continue uh, his momentum. Uh, it was interesting to hear the burden they face because they do think that they are going to increasingly get attacks, not just from Trump from his Twitter account, but from Republican super PACs and maybe the Trump campaign themselves. So as they're trying to continue to do well enough to secure the nomination, um, they have to be mindful that uh, the Trump forces are probably going to try and you know engage in mischief to weaken Joe Biden in the primary. But even if they're not successful doing that, to weaken them as a general election nominee. So I think that bears uh, really close watching. Also interesting that even though um, this is about delegates, um, there are scenarios where we don't have a pledged delegate majority leader. Uh, and Anita pointed out, Senator Sanders is the only candidate to say, if we have someone who doesn't have a majority of delegates but has a plurality, that person should be the nominee. 
But obviously, the Biden folks cannot count on that. If, if they end up having more delegates than Bernie Sanders, which is a pretty remarkable thing to say, given where we are last week. But that seems to be the trajectory we could be on. Uh, we have a lot more voting to happen to see if that happens. But, you know, they have to start really paying attention to making sure their delegate process is executed well at the state and district level so they get all the delegates that they want in elections, uh, begin to really talk to some of the pledge delegates that will be assigned um, to Mike Bloomberg and, and other candidates, and also the superdelegates. So that's just a reminder of how complex this is. I think sometimes it can seem like, well, the candidate did three events today, and you put out a new ad, and you're probably preparing for debate and did some fundraising emails. But there's a lot of planes in the air here, and you've got air traffic control, superdelegates, pledge delegates. Uh, in this case, the Biden folks may also have to worry about Republican attacks as, as their process is still going on. So I think a super interesting conversation. Also, clearly, uh, they do believe they need to add talent to their campaign uh, and believe that uh, Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, and Mike Bloomberg all have uh, potential areas of uh, talent for them to tap into. So it'll be interesting to see how quickly they're able to to bolster their staff. So I think, you know, a lot of my thoughts uh, were captured in the conversation with Anita. Just a few parting thoughts. You know, it's a reminder how momentum is still the strongest force in politics, particularly presidential politics. Uh, Joe Biden was able to leverage momentum uh, that mattered more than money, uh, mattered more than organization. Um, but I, I do think we should be careful that that not every candidate can do that. I, I think one of the reasons Joe Biden was able to do that was, you know, he spent most of last year, 2019, with, you know, good percentages of the Democratic Party saying they would support Joe Biden. Uh, when he began to struggle, you know, some people got cold feet and said, maybe I'm undecided or maybe I'm leaning Bloomberg or maybe I'm leaning Mayor Pete now because Biden just seems like maybe he's not going to be able to go to distance. And so once Biden was able to prove that he could win, that he had political support rallying to him, a lot of those people came back. So, you know, others maybe who hadn't had that support, you know, maybe they were at 15 percent. Could they leverage momentum up to 35 or 40? I think that's harder. But Joe Biden, I think, got back a lot of supporters who he had in the beginning, um, but, you know, they became concerned. Uh, so now the question for them is how can they build on that? And if I'm the Biden campaign, I'm focused as intensively as humanly possible on growing his support and political support in the Latino community, both because that'll help him get bigger numbers in the primary, but also help him in the general election. Uh, and I don't expect him to win young voters against Bernie Sanders, but I would spend extra time there, even if it doesn't result in vote now, because I think it may help him uh, in the event he is the nominee. The next set of contests, I do think, line up quite well for Joe Biden. Why? Well, as hopefully you know by now, this is an acquisition of delegate game. And particularly when you're down to a two-person race, um, which which we may be um, in reality, depending on what Elizabeth Warren does, but I still think uh, this is uh, largely going to be about Biden and Sanders no matter what. If, let's say in Michigan or Washington State, um, both states Bernie Sanders did well in last time all, although Washington is a primary this time as opposed to a caucus, let's say he wins in a two-person race, 53-47. You get the bragging rights, and Bernie Sanders gets his color up on the MSNBC map, but the delegates are split pretty evenly. The only way to really acquire uh, big delegate yields is when you're winning states in a two-way, you know, 62-38, 58-42, And I don't see any state remaining on the calendar where Bernie Sanders is likely to go into the mid to high 60s. He'll have some wins. But I do think there's some states where Joe Biden likely will, 
if you believe the results that happened last night on Super Tuesday will largely carry over. So states like Mississippi, which is next Tuesday, Florida, which is uh, the 17th of March, Georgia, which is March 24th, Louisiana, which is in early April. Um, those are all states where um, if you put them all together and Joe Biden roughly does demographically what he did last night on Super Tuesday, uh, he probably nets 140, 150 delegates alone out of those. The challenge in this process is it's super hard to get a delegate lead because of the way delegates are allocated. But once you have it, it's super hard to relinquish it. And you, if, if, if you're trailing in the delegate count, particularly as more and more contests happen, and that means delegates are taken off the board as you get deeper into the calendar, you really have to run up landslides. And I do think an important moment in the campaign, and I happen to agree with this, I've spoken publicly about this, Bernie Sanders said, you know, unless the pledge delegates were basically tied, so somebody has 1,400, somebody has 1,400, you know, if somebody has some lead, you know, that person should be the nominee. And, and Bernie Sanders is the only candidate to his credit, in my view, who said that. So, you know, if Joe Biden doesn't get a majority, 1991, but he's, you know, let's say ends this at 1650 or 1700, and, and Bernie's done well too, but it's at 1350 or 1400. I think that uh, under those circumstances, you know, my suspicion would be Bernie Sanders would say Joe Biden has won. So I'm not sure we're headed to for me, it's a nightmare, but I think a lot in the media would love this contested convention and drama in Milwaukee. I'd rather us not have that. So I think the things to watch in, in the coming weeks are uh, next Tuesday, uh, what happens? I think Bernie Sanders, we've got North Dakota, where I think the Bernie Sanders will do quite well, but it's a small state. Uh, Michigan, I think, will be a real battle. Washington State probably leans Sanders. Uh, then you've got Mississippi, which should be a Biden blowout, and Missouri, which I think will be very interesting. Um, you've got African American and suburban voters there that Joe Biden did exceedingly well with yesterday. But you know, Bernie Sanders I, I did quite well there uh, against Hillary Clinton. But I don't know if someone will net a lot of delegates out of there. But that'll be a real battle. We have a debate on March 15th, which could be our first two-person debate, which is just two days before Florida uh, and Arizona, Ohio, and Illinois. And a reminder, just like we saw last night, early vote, uh, Bernie Sanders and Mike Bloomberg in some states did quite well in early vote. Joe Biden dominated Election Day voters because he did so well with people who were late deciders. A lot of the vote in these contests coming up in March, uh, people are voting now. And that will just intensify. So we can't look at this as just, hey, it's March 17th, and we'll, everyone will vote that day. And kind of whoever's got momentum the night of March 16th is going to be advantaged by that. Rather have it than not at that point. But the early vote is going to be super important here. Uh, and then I think we have to watch carefully what, what Trump and his allies in Moscow uh, and Trump Tower and in all the you know constellation of super PACs on the Republican side do. Uh, my guess is they're going to aim a lot of fire at Joe Biden. I don't think it's just going to be tweets and Facebook posts. I think we're going to start to see some real, real money spent. Uh, in the off chance that they can derail his candidacy in the primary, uh, but believing that they can do real damage to him. So um, hopefully folks on our side will see that. Uh, and as Joe Biden continues to run a primary campaign um, and can spend some of his time and attention and maybe even resources fending off those attacks, he's going to need help because this is the danger zone. If, if Trump's able to basically have three or four months where he's doing all the attacking, 
and putting points on the board uh, definitionally against Joe Biden, um, that will make our job uh, winning a, a little bit harder. I mentioned last week, uh, I will just, if you could uh, abide this, I have a couple of books uh, that just uh, came out on March 3rd on Super Tuesday, Citizen's Guide to Defeating Donald Trump, which is uh, aimed at adults, and it's really a look at uh, everything the average citizen can do in this next election. Some ideas for activism, you'll have your own, but really um, trying to exhort people to understand that if they can just influence through this election, formally or informally, even a handful of people, uh, if enough of us do that, uh, that can be the win number. Uh, and this is going to be a brutally tough election. Um, so the spirit is, is, to me, more important than the specifics, but we, we need folks to get involved. And then Ripples of Hope, which is aimed at young readers, folks who don't have a vote, but they have a voice, and they can exhort us, uh, older generations, to do all we can. They can create their own content. They can really speak so powerfully about why this election is so important to them. So uh, both of those books, to me, capture what we're going to have to do, which is, you know, Trump has, you know, his campaign chairman, Vladimir Putin. Uh, He's got uh, foreign governments that will probably try and interfere. We know Trump will tell any lie. Uh, it takes to win. They're going to uh, have all the money in the world they need. They're very digitally sophisticated, and I think they're going to drive big registration and turnout in battlegrounds. So our cavalry is not our nominee. It's not their campaign as much as we need them to be super strong. Uh, and it's certainly no outside group. Even Michael Bloomberg, with all the money he's going to spend, hopefully, on uh, trying to beat Trump will be incredibly helpful. But every citizen has to do their part because those are the interactions that really, I think, will allow us to put together the winning coalition uh, in the battleground states we need to win. So fascinating election. Who saw this coming? Certainly in the Biden margin of victory. Uh, But Bernie Sanders remains a determined and and talented uh, and well-resourced opponent. So uh, I'm sure Joe Biden's going to really have to go out there and earn this. Uh, And Bernie Sanders is going to try and um, strengthen his coalition in places so far, suburban areas, uh, at the African-American community uh, where he has struggled. So that race goes on, but at least the great winnowing has finally happened. We've talked about this on this podcast previously, but it's finally here. And we're down to, I think, our two um, finalists for the right to take on uh, Donald Trump. And I think at this point you would say it's Joe Biden's race to lose. But again, he's got to perform well. uh, And Bernie Sanders clearly has a lot of assets he's bringing into this race. So look forward to spending time with you next week.